In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. O most loving Father, you want us to give thanks for all things, to fear nothing except losing you, and to lay all our cares on you, knowing that you care for us. Protect us from faithless fears and worldly anxieties, and grant that no clouds in this mortal life may hide us from the light of your immortal love, shown to us in your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Uh, just to review kind of where we are, we're going to try to finish up chapter 3 of 1 Peter this week. I'll hand the baton back off to Pastor Bruzik for next week, and he'll get us into chapter 4. There will also be that special voters meeting next week to take care of some of the things down at school. And so please be sure to be here for that. After that, uh, Vicar gets a crack at you in two weeks from today, and we'll see how we go from there. So 1 Peter chapter 3, remember we're kind of in this midst of talking about suffering, what it looks like uh, to suffer for doing good. And in the midst of this, we get this about verse and a half here that's often used kind of in, in evangelism context. But we'll read uh, from the last part of 3.15 up through the end of 17. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Then we start talking about Christ some more. So, be prepared... I'm a good Boy Scout, so I know something about being prepared. <laughs> but how do, you, how do you be prepared in this way? How do you be prepared to give a defense or a reason or a response or uh, apologia to someone who asks you, to all who ask you? How do you get prepared to speak? What do you think? Get your... Get yourself so full of the words that they just come bursting out to you even when you're not trying. So that you're packed full uh, in divine service in your own reading and you're talking with other Christians that you know God's word is in you, his spirit is in you, Christ is in you, so that that's just what kind of comes out. Be prepared to give a defense. This isn't here necessarily kind of a a formal line-by-line -line argumentation. It's just a response to someone who asks you. Uh, I've seen people kind of take this verse and turn it into this kind of long, drawn-out scheme, even with kind of if-then statements. If somebody says this, then you respond with this, and then they'll say one of these two things, and depending on what they say, then you got the next thing to say, and so you can kind of argue them all the way down until you get them where you want them, and then, then they're where you want them. You got them in the kingdom, and you kind of, you're out there winning souls. And that's not necessarily what we have a picture of here. It's just a matter of giving a response when somebody asks you something. It's not kind of arguing somebody into the kingdom of God. Uh, apologia here is, you know, you see the end there with logos is just a word. Uh, it's just a word of response. Uh, this is where we get our word apologetics. If you've heard that, is often has to do with the defense of the Christian faith. And what we don't have here is 
this isn't saying, you know, be, be prepared to uh, defend creation with a uh, scientist from one of the local universities sort of thing, or kind of be prepared to take on the local atheist on local television or something like that. This isn't, you know, kind of draw out this long reason thing, but just, just be prepared to give an answer to all who ask you. Notice who, who does the work here. It's, it's a matter of them, it starts off with them asking you for something about the hope that you have. Why would somebody ask you about the hope that you have? There, there's something different. We, we've been talking about this picture of resident aliens, maybe here through through First Peter. You're, you're strangers. You're, there's something different about you, uh, because you're Christian. You act differently. You you respond differently, and this is um, looks a little curious at times. You know, why are you taking your vacation to, you know, go down to New Orleans and not Cancun? You know, why do you send your kids to a Lutheran school when the public school does a good job too? You know, why are you acting differently than we expect? And that may actually prompt a question uh, for you to give a word concerning the hope. There, there should be a, a hopefulness in the Christian life. You know, every, everybody sees the same sort of bad news and, and uh, bad things happening. And uh, obviously, you know, as Christians, we're not exempt from bad things happening to us too. Uh, but as Christians, we have a different kind of hope than those who aren't in the church, who aren't baptized. And so when people see your hopefulness in a bad situation, that might be something that prompts questions. How can you, how can you still keep going after you know, fill in the blank has happened to you? And so there, there's a hopefulness that's in, that's in you that's not in the world. Uh, my homework assignment for you is to go and watch the entire Lord of the Rings trilogy by next week. <laughs> the extended version, of course, not the uh, theater release. But if you watch that, the word hope keeps coming up through there. It's really interesting to talk about, you know, this is a world where there isn't any more hope, and the people are looking for hope. The opposite of hope is despair. Uh, the Latin root sparrow is the word for I hope, so despair is the opposite of having hope. And the ideas of characters in, in there are actually giving hope. The, the idea of the king returning gives people hope. And so there's an interesting connection there. Do people, where do you look for, for hope? Do you have hope? Where do you find hope? Uh, and so it's just a matter of giving a word concerning the hope that's in you. Um, and this is the way that uh, the word is shared. It doesn't, it's not your normal everyday kind of evangelism program where you're going around knocking on doors and canvassing neighborhoods and things like that. I've, I've actually done that. I've participated in that sort of thing. And it's actually easier to go kind of talk to somebody you don't know often than people who are actually around you and would be likely to ask questions. Uh, someone made the comment last week that I didn't have enough funny stories. <laughs> so I'll try to, I'll, I'll tell you about one that I read about recently. It's from a book by Clement Preuss, who's a Lutheran pastor, who wrote a book called The Fire and the Staff, which just kind of gives a, a basic review of all the topics of, of Lutheran teaching from beginning to end. It's a thick book, but it's pretty easy to read. He's got lots of good stories in there. And one of them is about where he was at a, a fairly rural church, and he was getting 
just kind of used to things, and he found out they had an evangelism program, evangelism teams that went out, and typically it was, it was visiting new people in the community. They found out from some of the local realtors you know, who was buying houses, who was moving in. They put a list together to get the group together, go out and make visits. Well, there was one night where they were putting together the list of people to visit and making assignments, and he gave uh, one lady a name and an address of people to go visit. And she said, I can't go visit them, I know them. <laughs> and she didn't want to have that sort of a, a confrontation. And it's, you know, it's a lot easier often to talk to people we don't know, and you know, if they reject you, then you can just kind of walk onto the next door and don't have to worry about it anymore. But it's a lot tougher, of course, when it's people in your family, it's people at work, people in your neighborhood that you see all the time that you know, you'd, you'd actually speak to them about the hope that you have. One of my new kind of favorite sections of scripture is Colossians 4, 2 to 6, probably because I had to write a paper about this text last fall. <laughs> but it struck me as a really kind of fitting way of talking about what happens in the church as far as the word being spread. This is, this is the, near the end of Colossians. This is the last thing Paul says before you get to the ending of his letter where he says, you know, say hi to these guys and make sure you don't forget these people and do kind of the, the ending bit. This is his last kind of formal teaching section before he gives his final greetings. So Colossians 4, beginning at verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am now in prison that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Conduct yourselves wisely towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So you've kind of got a two-pronged two approach here. He begins by requesting prayers of support for himself and the other apostles who are out there as evangelists, as missionaries, that the Lord would open doors and give them opportunities to speak. So the first thing the, the Colossians are to do is to pray for and support the apostles, the people that God has specifically chosen and sent out there as evangelists. And the other half is just conduct yourselves wisely towards outsiders. Um, just live in a good way, is another way to put it. Making the best use of the time, uh, you use uh, gracious, salty speech, meaning something different than our usual salty language. But, uh, you know, speak well, uh, have words of grace, words that are fitting for the, for the occasion, and know how to answer people when they ask. So that's how it works. Often we give people a big guilt trip about not kind of getting out there and knocking on doors and uh, bringing in the sheaves or whatever. Uh, and that's not really what the picture that we have of the way evangelism works in the New Testament. You have the people that are specifically trained and set aside to go out there and do uh, kind of the door-to-door, the -door, the whatever, the, the preaching, the evangelism. And we can support that through our prayers, through our gifts, uh, and other ways like that. And then the other side of things is just be ready when people ask you, you know, what's, what's the deal with, with the way you're acting? This doesn't seem like what I expect. Uh, I've got some, you know, sample questions there. What do you believe about Jesus? That's not something, that's not usually the starting point for people. Usually it's something like, what do you think about, you know, the Da Vinci Code, the Left Behind series, 
whatever happens to be the, the big thing that's getting all the press that's in the movies or whatever. And so, you know, people may say, have you seen Da Vinci Code? Have you read the book? Have you, what do you think? And just kind of be familiar, know what, what might be something good to say at that point. Or a uh, question that kind of got addressed, well, it got addressed by our sermon this morning. What, can you believe in a God who allows, you know, storms to happen, whatever those storms happen to be? That's the point where people come to the time of actually asking questions. You know, you've been through this and seem to come out okay. Why, why are these things happening to me? How can God allow this to happen to me? Those are the times when the questions may seem to come. And then other more uh, practical things. You know, why do you bother getting up for church every morning instead of going out for coffee? And so, you know, it, it's not a matter of having you know, your list of questions and your list of answers. But these are just some things to think about. You know, if somebody asked you, what would you say? And often, you know, the best response is a question. Why do you ask? Why are you interested? And then just kind of go from there. But it's just a matter of being, being filled with God's word, being in prayer and study, so that when the opportunities come, when the doors open, that you have some way of responding. Uh, salt more as uh, it almost in the ancient world it, uh, seasoned with salt. Using there are, there are other quotes from outside the New Testament that talk about speaking with salt, and often it has to do with even being witty and having some sort of a, a interesting seasoned speech. Not necessarily an you know, overbearing come right at them, but you know, give, give something interesting that, that kind of gets people's interest and gives them something to work on and keep going. Yeah. It's kind of like telling funny stories. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, make, make it interesting. Don't, don't just kind of get out your uh, uh, King James Bible and you know, drone at them for half an hour, but you know, make, make it interesting, give something in. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that, that's often used in connection with the, uh, the words in the sea, on the Sermon on the Mount, you are the salt of the earth. There's all sorts of you know, ways we can look at salt. Another connection specifically with the Old Testament is that every offering was included a bit of salt. Everything that was offered as far as a burnt offering on the altars included some, sort of, some form of salt in there. So it could be that you know, your speech is offered as a as a sacrifice to God, but I wouldn't necessarily bring that in here. Yeah, yeah. The uh, our word salary comes from that Saul, and so the uh, the Roman soldiers were often paid with salt too. So? Oh, sure. There's some up here. So just just kind of moving along here, trying to make a little bit of. Progress here. The, verse 16 gives a little more explanation about the approach here. With prautetos, I like the uh, definition here. This is from one of the Greek dictionaries. 
the quality of not being overly impressed with one's sense by a sense of one's self-importance. Basically, don't make it about yourself and kind of making yourself sound like you've got all the answers that you know uh, exactly what people need to hear and it's all about you, but it's about kind of applying the word where, where appropriate. But with fear, uh, you know, not, not being kind of overbearing, but realizing that this is something that's kind of bigger than you. And keeping a good conscience, again, uh, don't give them a reason to slander you, which is what come, comes through there. Uh, don't, don't give them any excuse to kind of say, well, I don't have to listen to him or her because, you know, this reason or, or another. Just kind of, you know, it's a matter of getting yourself out of the way and letting the word, letting Christ come through. And then uh, verse 17, it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. You know, if it is God's will for you to suffer for doing good, then it, it's better for that than for, for doing evil. Uh, if it is God's will, clues us in that, you know, it's not, not necessarily everyone will be called to suffer, but only if, if that's the way that God can use you uh, to give someone else hope. But also don't be surprised if it happens. That's Kind of, again, we've got the, the new Christians and the old Christians here together. We've got a sermon addressing them. And so uh, some of the older Christians in the room may have already been through some of this, some of the new Christians as well, but this is something that you might expect. Uh, we are called to suffer as Christ suffered, which is kind of the next, the next connection here. And remember, too, this, this, this uh, little word or two about giving a defense, giving an answer, is within the context of persecution, of suffering. So it could be that Peter has in mind here, if you get kind of brought before the official courts and somebody asks you why it is that you're acting differently, why you're not showing allegiance to the emperor and to the Roman gods, you're ready to give an answer. And so again, this is kind of the context we have here within the, this context of um, being ready to suffer for doing good. This is just a part of who you are as a new Christian. Uh, any questions up through verse 17? What do you think? <laughs> How do, where, where do you start? Do you have a response? It depends on the person, where they are, and what, what the question is. You know, if, if people are kind of mad and angry at God, it's one thing. If they're uh, kind of feeling alone and upset, it's another thing. And it just kind of depends on the situation. Some people may need to hear, you know, it's. God's ways are higher than our ways. We don't understand what's happening, and it's just a matter of trusting in him. There's also some people may need to hear that God is here to be with us through all the difficult times that come, not to take everything away from us, because it's in the difficult times that he can grow our faith, draw us closer to him, and teach us 
teach us lessons in that way. Some people may need to hear about you know, the, the reason why there's war and strife and things is a result of human sin, and sinfulness uh, points us to uh, the reason why Christ came. If everything was, was perfect, then, we would, then our, uh, the, 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 the problems and uh, even the sicknesses and things in our life are a result of sin. The sin that we're born with, the sin that we do, uh, the sin that's, that came into the world through Adam. But it doesn't stop there. We have Christ who came to forgive our sins, redeem us, and save us, and he's prepared a place for us where we won't have to worry about death and dying and sickness and trouble and all of that, where children won't be abused, where nobody will die of hunger. And so the Lord hasn't left us in our sin, but he's provided a solution to that uh, by, his, by his son who saved us. God, God certainly, you know, if we, if we want to do our own evil deeds, he's not going to stop us. Um, but he, we, we, we don't want to kind of tie God's hands either and say that he's powerless to stop certain things either. Everything happens by the knowledge of God. And so, you know, we don't always understand why he may kind of thwart evil in one place and not in another. But that's the things that aren't revealed to us about God, that has to do with the hidden God. We can't really go there because God hasn't told us about those things. And so we, when, when the bad things happen, then he's provided a way out for us. And that's, that's the best way to go with things. Let's keep going here and get into, uh, see if we can finish up the, the chapter here in a few minutes. Uh, this is probably one of the more more difficult passages in the, in the whole New Testament. And so I'll give you lots of questions to ask Pastor Bruzik next week. <laughs> uh, starting at verse 18. For Christ also suffered 
wants for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Perfectly clear. Right. And so we have to be careful not to chop things up too finely. Remember that this probably began as a sermon, also became to be a letter that was circulated around. When you get a letter from someone, you don't usually, at least on the first read through, kind of read a line by line and then stop and think about every single word and uh, reflect on it, then go back a little bit and reread certain sections. Usually you have a good read straight through, the, straight through the letter, find out what's happening, read things as a whole. And then if certain things you want to go back and reread over and over again, you might do that if it's something special. And so we have to kind of keep the whole flow of the argument, flow of thought here in mind. We start with, well, we've got a major section here dealing with suffering, and now all of a sudden we're talking about Christ and his suffering. And the, what I want to try to keep in mind here, at least from the start, is what's the connection between our suffering and Christ's suffering? Is Christ just an example for us of how to bear up during suffering? Or is there something more? And, and I'm sure we'll see that there is. This is also very kind of creedal in format. We've got suffered, died, and rose again all here together. They're, the words are fairly poetic in, in Greek, and some uh, translations actually make it look like a hymn and kind of versifying it out here. So this could be part of an early creed or an early hymn that uh, Peter's quoting or bringing to mind in the people here. Uh, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Why did Christ suffer? In order to bring us to God. And the word bring us there uh, is often used, especially in like the Greek translation of the Old Testament, for giving an offering, presenting an offering. And the only offerings that God presented were those that were whole and perfect. And so in order for us, for Christ to present us to God, he makes us perfect, he purifies us, forgives our sins, and then presents us to the Father after he's kind of done his work on us. And so that's, you know, in, uh, in the epistle lesson for today, we get the, le the language of reconciliation, Christ reconciling us to God. This is just another way of talking about it, is Christ presenting us to God. You know, we are... Because of what Christ has done for us, we are Christ's offering to the Father. Uh, that he might put to death, excuse me, being put to death either in the flesh or by the flesh and then made alive by the Spirit or in the Spirit. And here the Greek is ambiguous. It can read either way. So it either is talking about how Christ kind of died in his body but then was made alive kind of spiritually I kind of opt for the second option, uh, put to death by flesh, by human beings. Flesh often has a, uh, 
a negative connotation, especially in writings of Paul. So it could be kind of put to death by sinful men, but made alive then by the Holy Spirit. Uh, because Christ, of course, was not just made alive in spirit, but in body as well. And so it wouldn't make sense necessarily to talk about him just having some sort of a spiritual resurrection. <coughs> so I would translate this. He was put to death by men, but then made alive by the Holy Spirit. And then how you translate that affects how you read the rest of this. Uh, 3.19, either in this state, namely being raised in the Spirit, or by the Holy Spirit, he went and proclaimed. This is just a generic word for preaching, being a herald. You know, they didn't have CNN in those days, so there were actually heralds who went around and proclaimed the king's edict and the, uh, the news and things like that. So this is just the normal word for making something known. So he proclaimed something, it doesn't say, to the spirits, whoever they are, in prison, wherever that may be. And so this is a pretty difficult passage to kind of put together and make a whole lot of sense out of it. I give you two options here. Uh, I was reading a number of articles on this. There's at least five different options. They've kind of condensed it and left out the, the least, least likely here. But there are two main ways of reading this. The first is the way that uh, is traced at least back as far as Augustine in that this is referring to Christ preaching through Noah at the time of the flood to the people there. And if you read back in uh, 1 Peter 1.11, talking about uh, the Spirit of Christ, uh, even if you back up to verse 10, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace which was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person what or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ. So we already have this reference to the Old Testament prophets and of preaching with the spirit of Christ. So this could be saying that it was by the Holy Spirit that Christ was preaching through Noah to the people of his time who have since died and are now spirits in prison. That's kind of option one. Option two is that this is a reference to the descent into hell. So that after Christ was raised again on Easter morning, he went, descended in body and soul into hell, and in there preached to the spirits who could either be uh, the demonic forces or the people who had died and were in hell at that time, and proclaimed to them his victory over Satan, and over death, and over sin. And there are those kind of two main options. In the early church, we have the teaching of the descent into hell pretty early. Uh, and they, but they didn't quote this verse to support it. They didn't kind of tie, connect that with what's happening here in 1 Peter 3. Uh, it was connected more with verses like Ephesians 4, 9 and just other kind of ways of uh, reading other scripture. Uh, Luther when he preached on the descent into hell, did not specifically tie it to this verse either. Uh, it seems to be more connected with this, kind of in the, period, in the century or so following Luther's death, they uh, made these kind of close connections between this verse and uh, the descent into hell. And I would, I would guess probably in the catechism, this might be one of the proof texts for 
for the descent in hell. I don't, I don't necessarily need this verse for it. And uh, really, either option, I think, is, is possible. I don't want to say definitively one way or the other, but just, you know, these are kind of two possible ways of reading this. First, that this is Christ who preached uh, in Noah's time uh, by the Holy Spirit, since it was Noah preaching by the inspiration of the Spirit, kind of like, you know, we, we talk about the uh, Holy Apostles preached by the mandate of Christ. Christ said, he who hears you hears me, so that those who preach the word of God are actually preaching the words of Christ. So could also be said that the Old Testament prophets were preaching Christ as, as well, even though Christ had not yet come. So either one is, is possible. Uh, there's nothing really in the text that makes one a whole lot more likely than the other. So either one is, is, is an option. At least five. Isn't one of them like the, the Nephilim that were at that time? The, some people say they're fallen angels that weren't Hebrew people and they were thrown in prison from that time. Too. Is that one of that, that, that's one of the ways of reading the, the spirits in prison is to make the connection to Genesis 6, uh, which is a very, another very obscure passage who talks about the sons of God coming down and being with the daughters of men and then there is this race of giants called the Nephilim. And again, that's a very hard passage to understand and get a grasp on there in Genesis 6, and some people connect that with this. There is also another Jewish writing circulating at the time called the Book of Enoch, which supposedly told the story of the patriarch Enoch, who was uh, one of those in line uh, before Noah, who, uh, if you remember, went straight to heaven without dying. And there was a book written probably around the time of the New Testament that talked about kind of the visions that Enoch saw, what heaven was like, what hell was like. And it talked about these spirits being in prison. So some people say that this is a reference to the book of Enoch. And uh, maybe even that Enoch's name should be in here somewhere and has dropped out. So it's not, you know, the big deal here is the death and resurrection of Christ and then the connection in kind of leading into Noah. And so whether these are the, the, the people at Noah's time who Noah preached to at that time, or whether these, these are the people from Noah's time who Christ preached to uh, after his death, either way, it's a connection between Christ's death and resurrection and kind of gives a, a segue here into talking about Noah and the flood and baptism. So. The lead-in here, then, is with verse 20. Uh, because they, this is those spirits in prison, uh, did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. He waited you know, about 100 years while Noah was building the ark for these people to repent, but the world was wicked, and uh, only eight people were saved. Uh, the ark is often a picture of the church. The number eight is a, a big number as far as new life, new creation, uh, circumcision was done on the eighth day. The resurrection of Christ took place on the eighth day of the week. Uh, you have seven days and then Sunday being the eighth day. Baptismal fonts are often then eight-sided, at least on top, just to talk about this, this new life, this new birth, this new creation that we have. 
And so the flood was kind of like a second creation where uh, the Lord wiped out what was there and started over again, got rid of the evil, and from that point on everything was good, but then soon falls into evil again. Luther has a famous prayer that makes this connection. I'm not going to read it now, but just this was part of, was part of Luther's baptismal liturgy. From what I've heard, it will be coming back in the new uh, Lutheran service books, so look forward to either this or something similar uh, at baptisms soon to come. But uh, Peter is drawing this, this connection between uh, the flood that saved Noah and his family and the baptism which now saves you, the people he's speaking to. This is another reason for thinking that this is part of a baptismal service with this word now. This has now happened to you. You too have been saved, just like Noah was saved. Just as Christ was raised from the dead, you have new life now too. Uh, not the removal of filthy flesh or dirt from the body, however you want to translate that, but a request or a plea for a good conscience. How do you have a good conscience with God? Well, he has baptized you and he's given you new life, forgiven your sins there at the font. What you have there is a Greek palindrome, which, is, which reads the same forward and backwards in Greek. Nipson anamemamemon an opsin. And so it, it works the same forward and backwards, which is translated as wash your lawlessness, not only your face. And there's a number of baptismal fonts that have this written all the way around the outside. So that's just something fun and interesting to teach your kids. Nipson anamemamemon an opsin. And so, so baptism, there, there's, there's plenty of washings in, uh, in rituals and other religions. Lots of religions use water, recognize kind of the symbolism there of, of, of washing. But in Christian baptism, it's not just the removal of dirt. It's not just kind of preparing yourself uh, for something else to come, but it's baptism itself which saves you. Uh, verse, verses 21 and 22 give the connection between what happens to us with what happened to Christ. Uh, it reminds me a lot of uh, Romans 6. Uh, baptism, which, now, which corresponds to this, which is the flood, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So because Christ was raised, because we are joined to Christ in baptism, then we too have new life now and the promise of the resurrection that we will be with Christ in heaven. Uh, even though kind of in the time of Noah, there was lots of evil and sin in the world, in the time of Christ, they even put to death the Son of God. In the time you're living in now, there's persecution, there's suffering, there's bad things happening. Out of suffering, the Lord has resurrection for you. He has a new life for you, and he gives that to you in baptism. So that's kind of the connection here. Uh, Jesus, Noah, you are saved, washed free from sin. You have a, a clean conscience, the promise of resurrection, and there's more. Uh, verse 4 starts with, since therefore, and therefore is always pick up the, the thought you've just had and take it to the next the next thing. So that's what Pastor Bruzik will have for you next week is the next thing. Any quick question that I can answer in a word or two?
Okay, let's pray with the prayer the Lord taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.